Welcome to another edition of UCI Conversations. My special, special guest today is UCI social ecology professor Richard Matthew. Richard's work as a social scientist has frequently taken him to war-torn countries in the height of crisis. Countries like the Congo, Rwanda, and Pakistan, Sierra Leone, to name a few. After researching Richard's work, it is of no surprise he is a member of the United Nations Expert Group on Environment, Conflict, and Peacemaking. He's also a senior fellow at the International Institute for Sustainable Development in Geneva, Switzerland. He is the real deal. And he's also given a number of TEDx talks and been a featured storyteller on the Moth podcast twice. So welcome, Richard. How are you today? Great. Thank you. Fantastic. The first thing I want to touch on, Richard, was social ecology. I think UCI was one of the first universities that had a program like that. And to be honest, for decades, I've often wondered, what is that? I know frequently people take that as a Mm pre-law. And I think maybe I have a better concept now because these issues are becoming more... I know they were always important, but could you please define for us so we have a better idea? Uh, Sure, I'd be happy to. I mean, I think that when social ecology was set up in the 1970s, 1980s, it was seen as a space on campus for interdisciplinary work. So it brought together social scientists and natural scientists and psychologists on the premise that many problems require multiple disciplines if we're going to understand them adequately and develop solutions to them. So social ecology was sort of a problem-solving school, a school that took the position that universities have a role to play on complex social problems, and complex social problems typically have many types of connection, including connections to naturally ecological systems. So this was a place which brought different types of professors together, and I think it has done lots of interesting work. Today, it is far more common to have interdisciplinary work being done on a campus than it was 25 or 30 years ago. So at the time, it was sort of pioneering. Now it's becoming more, sort of more normal research. When you were going to school at McGill for your undergraduate work and Princeton for your PhD, were you studying social ecology or was it called something else? Um, I was, uh, you know, I studied international relations, which itself was a sort of interdisciplinary field that historically brought together economics, political science, and history. But I was, I was sort of trained as a political scientist. How long have you been at UCI? Two decades. Has it evolved in those two Oh, completely. Days? I mean, there's, there's lots and lots of things that have happened. On the one hand, technology has dramatically changed what it's possible to do with, say, the data from numerous different fields. So, you know, in the past, bringing together people was in some ways constrained by what, was, what we were able to do with data, how we were able to manage it. Now, with things like spatial analysis and GIS and very, very fast processing computer technologies, we can bring large amounts of data together from multiple sources and find clever ways to fuse them, to bring them together into sort of a, a you know, a, a better understanding of how something whether it's the spread of a disease or a vulnerability of flooding or the characteristics of fire or of crime or in some of the challenges of, of children coming out of the foster care system, we're able to now bring data together to understand these issues, I think, much more efficiently than we could in the past. And that means that the projects are much larger than they would have been in the past, in many ways more sophisticated because we can run simulations, thousands and thousands of simulations uh, today on a, on a regular computer that would have taken literally supercomputers weeks and weeks to manage 
25 years ago. Mm. So technology has changed things. I think that the world has changed. So that's the other thing. The world is a much more connected place. Mm. Awareness of the ecological dimensions of many of our challenges, whether they're health challenges or whether they are poverty challenges, housing challenges. We now, and challenges in the areas that I study, like conflict, we now have a much deeper appreciation of the ecological dimensions of these. So we know that things like drought and flood, we know that they have complex but important relationships to outcomes like poverty or violence. So the world, I think, is interconnected in ways that are much more explicit and visible than in the past, much denser. And that's also, by the way, linked to technological innovation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the, the sort of the density of connectivity is linked. The awareness of the environment has grown steadily over the past 25 or 30 years. And our ability to deal with this by managing complex types of data in new ways has improved. Can you pinpoint when you decided to go into international relations? Was there an event for you? Mm, was it? There, probably there. I think that um, when I was a graduate student, I initially wanted to study political philosophy. When I was a graduate student, the world was changing so dramatically. And at the time, and by the time I, you know, got out of graduate school, it was remarkably different than when I had started. And that was really because I was there during the, the time when the Cold War ended and when Rio, the Rio Conference on the Environment, took place in the early 1990s. <laughs> and so, and, and those two events were among, you know, they, they, they were extremely important. What was that of, Rio conference again? It was on the environment. Oh, okay. That was the, the first, not the first time, but that was the biggest single moment in which the world's scientific community spoke to the entire world and said, we need to dramatically change what we're doing and suggested a paradigm of sustainable development as the right way to go forward. So, you know, those events had enormous influence on my sense of what I needed to do and what I could do. So the fact that the, that the Cold War came to an end and the importance of the environment made it seem obvious to me that the interesting questions would take place in the international arena. And that that's where I had a sense, this is where much of the excitement is going to be going forward. And, you know, that was also the period when the internet was starting to become accessible and computers were affordable to people and everybody for the first time really had their own computer. Um, which I think in the 70s, it was a much rarer, 70s and 80s was much rarer. But by the end of the 80s, through the early 1990s, everybody began to use computers. So you were connected to the world. Things were emerging like, and I can't remember the year, but eBay and Amazon were emerging at that time. And there was just a sense of excitement and change and possibility. And for me, the international arena was where I wanted to focus my attention. The time between your PhD and coming to UCI, how many years was that? That was about five years. Oh, okay. So what kinds yeah. of things were you doing? And before? so I went to DC. So I had a postdoc and ended up in DC. Basically, this was the period when Clinton and Gore, so this was the late 1990s, when Clinton and Gore were really uh, mid to late 1990s, trying to dramatically take advantage of the opportunities presented by the end of the Cold War. So they were going to, you know, if, if one remembers, they were going to sort of reduce the defense budget in significant ways because we no longer needed a massive nuclear arsenal and we no longer had a major competitor and they were going to shift our focus to the environment. And so I was lucky. I, be, I was able to become part of a series of projects that that administration sort of was implementing in those during that decade. Were you and to me, that was exciting. That was, that was, that was you know... 
I, I actually believe that, that, they, that they had the potential to be sort of transformative at the global level. Now, as we know, by the late 1990s, their whole administration started to fall a little bit apart. Clinton ran into problems. Congress became very much an obstruction, sort of as it has been ever since. And so the agenda did not unfold, you know, in the way it was originally envisioned. But it was still fun to be part of it for a few years. And then I decided I'd really had enough of D.C. and the political scene. It was time to... Were you working no. at the State Department during those years? So, or was so I worked. So I, I was in. I was. Uh, I worked at Georgetown School of Foreign Service, mm. and then on a series of range of projects, mostly with the defense and intelligence communities, mm-hmm. who were interested in what global environmental change might mean mm-hmm. for the possibilities of of peace and and conflict. In terms of reducing the defense budget, which has come up in conversation from. You know, whenever you're talking about these things, because we have such a huge defense budget, was it reduced at that at those times? There was a little bit of reduction, but not very much. The, 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 there was an attempt to clean to start to do things like clean up sites, defense sites that had left an incredibly toxic legacy. Um, there was an attempt to green certain things. Um, there was lots of, of sort of focus on greening the procurement policies of, of the defense community. Uh, there were new initiatives launched uh, around the idea of environmental security. Basically, could promoting a healthy environment in different parts of the world actually promote peace in different parts of the world? And could ignoring it and allowing people to suffer from drought and flood actually create conditions conducive to violence? And so there was a lot of inquiry in that, but there wasn't very much reduction of the budget overall. And um, immediately after that, 9-11 took place, and that led to restoration of any savings that had begun to be felt in the 1990s were uh, stopped, and there was actually a deeper investment in defense establishment and intelligence then. And and I'm not saying it was wrong. It was, you know, obviously the country uh, mobilized very quickly around 9-11. You know, with your involvement with you know, many different areas, what's the hardest part of your job and your schedule? Are, are, does working at UCI, is it conducive to being able to go and do things? Or, yeah, is that a challenge? I mean, I think that, you know, it's like almost everybody these days, time is a resource that is, is you know, feels always very scarce. And so balancing stuff is one of the biggest challenges. I have an administrative function, a teaching function, a research, a research function, I have a family, and, it, and, and these things, you know, um, the, and things are, are, nothing happens quickly anymore. So just getting from one part of the world to the next, um, and that also, by the way, is, is in part a 9-11 legacy, is, is, is a much more complicated procedure than before that. Um, so things take longer and we have less time. At least that's how it feels. I think, I think for me, keeping up with things like email is extremely difficult for me. And uh, in, a, in, a, in a lot of ways, being off in the field is very, very nice and sort of relaxing because you are sort of given a break from all the stuff that grinds against your, your day you know, on, a, on a regular basis. And uh, I think that... You know, UCI has been very generous in allowing me to, you know, 
manage my time uh, in, in ways that make sense for the work that I do, which means that are, you know, there are times when I go off for weeks at a time and sometimes this has to happen very quickly. So UCI has been a, a great platform for me, but I think that time management is something that doesn't matter where you are in the world and it doesn't matter what your social or economic position is. Everybody, I, in my experience, is feeling sort of stressed out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's, that's tough. I think the other thing is that Orange County in many ways, and it's evolved a lot. It's a more diverse and I think a, a more open and interesting place than it might have been 20 or 30 years ago. But it is in many ways an, a very, very unusual enclave of enormous wealth and power and capability. And most of the world does not look anything like Orange County. Mm. So when I get out there, I, suddenly, I always remember, oh my gosh, the world really is very, very different than the place I live in. Speaking of which, do you have any trips planned at this point? Well, we have projects right now in Paraguay, and I go there. Malawi, I'll be going there. We have work in Bangladesh, and I expect to go there. So those for sure. And are those UCI projects, or are they... These, almost all my work is funded out by something outside UCI. It could be NSF, or it could be NOAA, it could be private foundation. UCI doesn't provide the funding for the research. We, and, and, and frankly, uh, a lot of my time and the time of any professor is spent raising funds for his or her research. So I do a lot of that. You know, I'll be going to, I, I know I'm going to a conference in France in a few months, um, Hawaii. So yeah, I'm on, I, I hist- over the past 20 years, I would say I travel about 120 days a year. Okay, so a third, third of the John yeah. I heard on one of your podcasts that you said you're not a relief worker, which makes sense. Could you define what you are? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I think that it, you know, I've, I've been fortunate in being able to play different roles. In a lot of ways, I am a researcher. I'm trying to collect data and information that I can then analyze at, to help us understand you know, why certain things are happening and, and what sort of solutions might be viable. So I do a lot of listening, a lot of watching, a lot of observing things. I've also gone on a series of of UN missions, and in that capacity, you are more of a humanitarian worker, not giving out water or vaccinating people, but you are assessing their needs and then communicating them back to the world. And and I've done a lot of work, for example, in refugee camps, trying to assess the needs of people there and communicate them back out. But most of my work is as a researcher. Professor, can you give us your opinion about the situation in Syria with President Trump's decision to pull out and now it appears to be a humanitarian crisis going on with the Kurds. Is that something that you care to, to talk sure. about? Sure, I mean, I'm happy to talk about it. I think that it's, it's very difficult to project forward. We have a complicated world, and you have to be a little bit humble about saying what will happen. I think that we know now that Syria is going to have a very, very uh, big legacy for the next decade, two decades, three decades, I don't know. But you cannot move that many people out of a country and into other countries. You cannot have that level of violence. Um, You cannot put that sort of pressure on refugee systems and so on without it having a very, very long-lasting set of effects. So I think that no matter what Syria and that part of the world, we're going to be 
in sort of at the top of the agenda for a very long time. I think what my sense of what has happened is in the past couple of weeks under under our president is that that situation has been more been made much more complicated in ways that will almost certainly hurt people who we worked with and who depended on us and trusted us. So I think the situation will become more complicated as a result of our of, of our decision to pull out under conditions which are extremely hard to understand the rationale for. I think that this will also very likely make it easier for countries like Russia and and Iran to have greater influence in there, which adds more complication and makes the situation less easy to resolve and manage. So I think we've taken a complicated situation and we've made it even more difficult to find a, a path towards peace than it, than it was. And it, and it was already difficult. I also think that there will be some potentially potentially long-lasting effects on us. I think that this is not the first group of people. I mean, in, in, in Vietnam, we, we left a lot of people who had helped us sort of on their own to fend for themselves. And while it wasn't a bloodbath, as some people predicted it, it, it could have been, it was, it was not one of our finest moments. And I think we've done something very similar here. We've taken people who put themselves in, at, at risk to help us. And we have sort of left them and, and to defend themselves in a situation where we knew that they were facing enormous potential risk. I think that many parts of the world are going to be asking themselves, how much can we trust a country that wants us to provide intelligence and information and support on things like global terrorist networks, if at any time they might abandon that first line of intelligence, that first line of support. So I think it's bad for us politically. I think it's bad for Syria and the Middle East. I think it does not make us look good. And I don't know, I can't predict how it will affect us, but I'm pretty, it seems very likely that if, if you're another country or if you're a small group in a country, um, you're going to be very wary about what you might say to the U.S., say to the U.S. diplomatic or intelligence communities, what you might share, what assets you might share, because you're going to worry not just that we have a president who might communicate this information to Russia or another adversary or might promise one thing and fail to deliver, but it looks, I think, from the perspective of the rest of the world, that we have no set of checks and balances that work either. So even though, you know, I'm sure the world understands that the State Department was confused and disagreed with this, and most of the defense and intelligence community were confused and disagree with this, and a large, a large number of people in Congress seem to be either confused or, or explicitly in disagreement with this, but that has not led to any sort of constraint on the behavior. And so I think that the world is going to also wonder, does our country really have that vaunted set of checks and balances that make sure that power can't spiral off in some irrational and uh, way that, that, that doesn't serve our interests? So I would be worried about this. I don't want to overstate it, but I would definitely be very worried that this could be something we'll be mopping up for quite a few years. Thank you for that. I recently heard you speak at the UCI's What Matters to Me and Why presentation opportunity. It was great to hear your story. Did, did you have any surprises from the experience? 
Um, actually, lots. I think that, that I was surprised that such a big crowd showed up to listen to this. I had no idea. I honestly didn't know about the series. There's a lot that goes on in this campus. It's hard to keep track of everything. I wasn't aware of this, and I didn't think it would attract such a big group, so that was surprising. But it was also surprising for me personally to reflect on why I do this and to sort of see if I could find connections to the way I was raised or, you know, things that were happening when I was a student and studying. And I did find connections, and that was sort of interesting. I, it, was, it was like quickly writing your own biography. I never, I, I've always only done that in a very technical way, you know, my official resume or short description of what I do. And this was much more personal. And I, I, I found it actually fun. I see there was a recent announcement that there will be a study that you're leading, I believe, of the socioeconomic effects of coastal flooding in California. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You bet. I'd love to tell you a little bit about that. I think everybody in California knows about the devastating floods that have affected Puerto Rico and Texas and Florida and Louisiana. And we know about the massive fires and droughts that we've experienced over the past 10, 15 years. Uh, But what I think does not get as much attention as it deserves is that most Californians are living in extremely vulnerable floodplains. And that's all of the L.A., Orange County region. And that's the Sacramento, San Joaquin Delta region. In both of those areas, and you have more than half of of the state's population in those two areas, mostly in the L.A. Orange County area, there have historically been absolutely devastating floods. Think of basically much of Orange County and much of L.A. County were once underwater because of flooding uh, for weeks under four to ten feet of water. I had no idea. This was in 1861, 1862. Entire cities were destroyed in California. At the time, our major river systems changed dramatically. Uh, Rivers moved by miles. It was utter devastation. And that's what we would call in the the hydrological world a one in 200 year event. So it doesn't take a lot of math to say the last one was 1861. You know, we're almost at 200 years now. Does that mean that we can predict it over the next two or three decades? No. But what we can say is that that type of flooding today would be far more damaging because there are far more, uh, far more people living here than there were back in the 1860s, far more infrastructure that could be damaged, and so on. And, and the hydrological system has intensified. So the possibility of enormous volumes of water, they're called atmospheric rivers. And atmospheric rivers under certain conditions pick up huge volumes of water. And one of the parts of the world where they can drop for days massive amounts of rainfall is right here in Orange County, L.A. So I would say that that, um, uh, the possibility of absolutely catastrophic flooding, and models suggest that the worst earthquake scenario that we could imagine would cause less damage than the worst flood we can imagine here. So this flooding, would, it would be a health crisis. It would probably stop tourism. It would probably take months, maybe years, to recover from. Is it going to happen? The data would suggest, of course it's going to happen. It has happened every 200 years for as far back as we have data. So yes, it's going to happen. But 400, 600, 800 years ago, there were very few people living here, right. so it was a very different right. event. What would happen now, I think, would be remarkable, and it will be worse because of a couple of things. One is, to make it possible to settle in this area, where you have wonderful 
it's a wonderful climate, sort of warm, temperate weather all year round, and you know the possibility of a huge port and fresh water coming down through a series of river systems. To make that possible, we had to build one of the world's largest sets of water management with aqueducts and levees and dams and so on. People have moved into an area protected by that huge infrastructure, and that huge infrastructure now, parts of it decades old, is cracking, it's crumbling, it's falling apart. So it is not clear that the infrastructure could stand up to a major event. It's almost certain that parts of it would collapse. Uh, Wherever it collapsed, there would be people on the other side of that. So we have a large number of people who are comfortably living in an area that could experience truly catastrophic flooding. I think that it's easy to be diverted by the fires, which they're hugely devastating. They happen every year. And almost certainly there are far better ways to manage them than what we're doing in California. We have people at UCI who study fire management, and we are not doing a good job of it. Droughts, we've become probably more and more water efficient over the past 15 years. And if you're in a wealthy community, you're probably living in conditions that are very, very efficient in many ways. But flooding is something that we have not given much attention to, and we should because the defense system we built is getting old. The seas are rising. The prospect of massive amounts of water being dumped on us for weeks is very real. And if that occurs also when we had big winds and big waves coming in and things like that, in places like Orange County, the damage would be, I think, something that we would have never have seen before in this country. How long will that study take? Do you have any idea? What kind of manpower will you have on it? So we have a great team. We've put together a team of people, uh, mostly from UCI, but we have um, some really wonderful scholars from Riverside, San Diego, and Berkeley on the team. It brings together hydrologists and engineers with social scientists and economists. So it's a really interesting interdisciplinary team. This initial study is two years long. And it's designed to really set us up to go after further rounds, larger rounds of funding. It's sort of a process that you often go through. So this is a sort of proof of concept study which tries to answer one big question, which is under different scenarios of flooding, how will rich and poor be differently affected? And we know from what's happened in places like Texas, Louisiana, and Florida that the rich tend to recover very quickly and the poor in a community that's flooded, sometimes never recover at all. Their losses are extensive and more or less permanent. And it's all sorts of small things aggregating. They lose their $500 a month apartment and they can't find anything that's less than 900. That's a huge difference. They miss some payments on their car and then it's repossessed. The place they work closes down for three months and they don't really have any savings, so their credit rating goes down and they don't know how to bring that back up. So all those things, they face some unexpected health costs that they weren't prepared for. And so what happens in a big flood event is poor communities are hit from all sides and the relief is usually inadequate and it takes a long time to receive. And so months, years later, they're still trying to recover from that blow. Wealthier communities and families typically have better insurance. They're able to consult lawyers and talk to government officials and get assistance quickly. They have their own resources, so they can often leverage whatever insurance payments they receive with their own resources. And they can often build a more resilient and robust 
whatever it is they need to replace, flooring of their homes or, or whatever it is that, they're, that, that they lost, they're often able to come out better off at the end, whereas poorer communities, the struggle can last literally a lifetime. And we know that in this country, once you've done something like lost affordable housing, you put yourself in a highly vulnerable position and, it's, and, and it can turn into a downward spiral that is just almost unstoppable. So the, I think it's so exciting about this study is we're trying to say it's up to us as a country to decide how we're going to manage risk and for whom we're going to manage risk. That's what public policy and, and public deliberation are about. Who gets what and, and under what terms. We have done a great job managing the risk in our wealthier communities. They have good fire departments, they have great police forces, they often have all sorts of building codes which protect their homes from flooding and fire and earthquake and so on. And they often have health insurance and those sorts of things. But in the poor parts of this country, we have done a very poor job managing their risk. Their health care is inadequate. Their homes may not be built to withstand the sort of pressures that they'll face. They don't have often the same sort of security of employment and so on that their wealthier neighbors might have. So at least evidence like what we're expecting to come out of the study can help maybe inform a richer public debate about how do we want to manage flood risk in California? And are we being as inclusive as we need to? Because if people lose their homes and we could have done something else, that's, from my perspective, a moral problem. But over time, it's also a cost to everybody. So, you know, it would make sense for us to take our very rich understanding of things like flood and fire and drought Mm -hmm. and use that to bolster the risk management systems we have in ways that are really inclusive Mm. and so that the poorest members of our community are not always the ones bearing the brunt of costs. Mm -hmm. We would like to see that. We would like to to demonstrate in advance of the event what would likely happen to poor communities in California rather than as in the case of, say, Puerto Rico or Louisiana, discovering after the event how terribly off some people are and how little can be done to help them. So ideally, this study will sort of say, look, we have some options, Mm -hmm. and we could do things more effectively. And why are we not doing these things? Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't seem right to leave a large part of the people living in this country exposed Mm -hmm. to what we are certain is going to take place in the world of hazards. Mm Very persuasive points. Thank you. Professor, I know you have something very exciting coming up. It's the first international conference on environmental peace building on October 23rd through the 25th. Can you please tell us all about it? Sure, I can. I'm happy to. I'm very excited because we've created a space, and this is the very first time that people who are building peace from an environmental perspective, from all over the world, have ever come together. And whether they're working in Syria or Colombia or Yemen or Afghanistan, um, you know, just the, the possibility of coming together and sharing experiences, sharing challenges, sharing problems is incredibly exciting. Um, and the support for this, the enthusiasm, has been um, amazing. We have 250 people from around the world coming to UCI, 
we have eight training sessions, 40 panels, we have an awards ceremony, we have a concert. It's really, really exciting. And it's great to, to think that you know the United Nations is a supporter of this and is sending a big contingent of people. And there are people coming from New York and, and Washington and so on to this event. So it is really a very exciting moment for us. It focuses on the environmental dimensions of peace building. So peace building historically had four principal components. I won't go into too much detail, but just to give listeners a, a sense. And the idea w- was, how do you restore the economy so that people could get back to work and investors would be willing to invest? How did you make people feel safe again by disarming rebels and citizen militias and professionalizing police? How did you build government capacity, especially if the government hadn't been functional for years or decades? What did the government need to become a functional, trusted government? And what sort of reconciliation process could you build into a post-war society so that people could come to terms with the incredible losses and violence that they had experienced? And I was part of a group of people who years ago looked at this and said, we should also be integrating into this some understanding of what's happened to the environment and what needs to be done because all of these people will need water and they'll need food and they'll need fuel and they'll need construction materials and very likely in most wars, and this is the case in most wars, these things have all been damaged considerably. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly true. People during war, water systems are often bombed, energy systems are often bombed, transportation systems are often bombed, plantations, farms might be abandoned and and they might grow over for years and years and years. People might move into forests for safety where they're living on whatever food and energy they can find in a forest area. So you have all this happening and then the war ends and people start to move and people may come back into the country and they want to settle down and they want to get their farms going again. They want to be able to, to you know, rebuild bridges and they want, they want water and so on. And so what we said, what we argued was we need to do a complete assessment early in the process, not after these other things are five or ten years along, but right away. Because what was happening was people were making decisions, let's get youth back to work and we'll get them back to work cutting down forests or something like that, without thinking, oh, and this is going to cause massive problems for the water supply to this city over here. So we said, let's get a, an overall view, and let's, uh, you know, so that so that this information, and, and environmental data may not have been collected in a country during the war at all. So they may have very little idea of how much forest has been lost, you know, what, what, the, what water is now contaminated, these sorts of things. Let's get a big view, and we discovered that this was hugely useful a hugely useful thing to do. It built trust because people could now say, oh, so this is the damage and this, and, and, and then you could explain why something became a priority or didn't. It wasn't necessarily because of the politics. It was because there was an ecological reality and you couldn't restore this until you'd restored that. So people could see the big picture. They could see connections. And it has been very exciting. And I would say that 20 years ago, the environment was essentially not part of rebuilding countries coming out of war. Today, there is no rebuilding of countries coming out of war in which the environment is not a major component. And so these are the people who do that work. These are the people who, they go in early and they assess what's happened. 
They help develop the national plans for reconstruction. How do you get water and energy and food back to people? They try and in, in countries that maybe have, have been looted heavily, so countries that have stocks of things like hardwoods or, or diamonds or gold. Often they've been looted by rebels and other groups during the war. Countries that haven't been able to protect themselves, they may have pirates that are overfishing on their coastline. All of these things have caused damage. And now we have the people who have had to deal with all that coming together to share their experiences. And I can guarantee you that in Colombia there are all sorts of questions about the natural environment and what they need to do going forward. In Syria, there will be huge questions because, you know, a major drought preceded and sort of overlapped the civil war. In Yemen, you have enormous environmental concerns. Afghanistan, enormous environmental concerns. These are over logging, they're overfishing, they're contamination of water, there's dust in the air. There's all sorts of things that happen in a war. And so it's exciting to me to bring all these people together and to say we have created an association that you can join and be part of this discussion, and each year we will have a conference. And already um, several places are, are starting to bid on the second conference. I think it'll probably be in Geneva next year, and there may be one in Colombia, very possibly in New York. So it's sort of exciting that Irvine kicked this process off. Yes, yes. And this is open to the general public? So parts of it are. It's so packed with people Parts of it are closed, parts of it are open. I think that it would be great to have people come to the award ceremony, and that's a great opportunity to see many of these people. Some of them are really quite heroic figures, things that they've done. We have a concert. All the conference attendees will be at the concert. So Wednesday evening at the Barclay from 6.30 till about 9, there's a series of events and the public's invited. If they go to the Barclay website, there's a charge for admission. If they listen to your show and want to reach out to me, I will provide them with tickets. Fantastic. And that's on Wednesday? October 23rd. 23rd. Gotcha. The sessions on the 24th and 25th are mostly closed. However, anybody who's got a particular interest in these things can contact the conference team and we can find a way to get you into sessions that you're interested in. Excellent. And if you wanted to contact the team, is there a website? There is. So this is hosted by the Blum Center at UCI, and we have our own website and uh, email contact, and all the information is up there on our website. Great. So it's the Blum Center at UCI. Excellent. I'm so glad you mentioned about the Blum Center because you're the director of the Blum Center, right? Can you please just give us a brief rundown of what that's all about. Sure. The Blum Center is part of a UC-wide network. The first Blum Center was started at Berkeley about 20 years ago. And the idea was to focus attention on the challenge of poverty. California has the biggest poverty challenge in the country. You know, it's sort of interesting to note Orange County in California, Orange County and Los Angeles County as part of California, if those two counties were an independent country, we would be one of the 10 wealthiest countries on the planet. But we would also have one of the highest poverty rates on the planet. So roughly one out of four Californians are in extreme conditions of poverty, and probably one out of two struggle to make ends meet. You know, Professor, I, I got to say, it's hard to believe that without just, you know, just as being somebody who lives in Orange County. Yep. Orange County has one of the highest rates of poverty in the country. So, and, and it's driven largely, or not completely, but largely by the cost of housing. And so what we see is that in 
parts of Anaheim, Santa Ana, Huntington Beach, massive crowding and a fairly significant homeless problem. It's not as big as in Los Angeles and San Francisco, but given the wealth that we have in Orange County, it's shocking. So we have huge crowding. We have we have large numbers of people in this county who are living in garages or sharing studio and sing and one bedroom apartments with five or ten people. So we have a massive crowding problem. We have I'm sure everybody's familiar with the thousands of people who are homeless in, in Orange County. You don't see this in much of the rest of the country. So homelessness is not in it's not sort of oh every state has a homelessness problem. California has a homelessness problem. Many, many states don't really have a problem at all. California has a problem with a large number of people who are making daily decisions between food and shelter and medicine and transportation. What happens is once you're in this position, this vulnerable position, it's very hard to get out of it. If you're in unstable housing, it's really, you know, or if you, or if you get into credit card debt or something like this, it's really hard in this state to pull yourself out of those challenges. So they just sort of tend to get bigger and bigger and more and more daunting. Um, so we do have a big problem. I think it's remarkable that we have a collection of the wealthiest people in, in the world living in South County, and yet people who in North County, we have people who materially are roughly in the same position as serfs in the Middle Ages. That is, their, their, their net assets and worth are close to zero. Mm. Mm. So we do have a problem here. Yeah. And the idea of the Blum Center was to start looking at this problem and educating students about this problem because we know that inequality, massive income in wealth inequality, create all sorts of political and other types of challenges. Mm. They're not good for public health. They're not good for law and order. They're not good for a sense of shared purpose and identity. Mm. Inequality is fine when, when people sort of all have a, have a reasonable chance mm. of, of doing what they want with their lives and competing fairly. Mm. And we understand, okay, if you, want, if you put that eight years into medical school and those services are much in demand, you will be paid more than somebody who didn't want to do that. We understand that. But when, when one person has absolutely no chance at all of even getting to college, that's a very different thing. We, you know, inequality is, is sort of permissible in our culture when we have some level of equal opportunity to start off with. What we've ended up with in this country is a large number of people who don't see any pathways to social mobility. They're sort of born into poverty and they don't really see any easy ways out because right away, and we have, you know, we have one of the, the, the country's most famous people studying this, Greg Duncan at UC Irvine, who basically points out if you're born into a poor family, you are penalized from that day forward and you will not catch up in school. School's a good example. Wealthy communities and wealthy families they double the investment into education of their children. So their children don't just go to school. They also go to SAT prep classes and they go to summer camps and they go to summer courses and they get tutors and they take music lessons outside of school. They have a rich, rich educational experience. Poor kids, they don't get any of that. And so in grade 12, they're not even close to competitive for college. Any college looking at some kid who's taken 12 years of piano lessons and has been in computer camp at a college for four years and, and so on and so forth, that kid is going to, and has taken SAT prep courses, that kid is going to be better off. Um, so the inequality has early effects and which, which haunt people for their entire lives. 
And the Blum Center was sort of set up as an opportunity to bring the enormous capacity of the University of California to bear on understanding some of the challenges of poverty and inequality and thinking about some of the solutions. So ours at UCI started five years ago. We were, I think, the last one of the 10 campuses. We were in the last group, and it has been fantastic. The reception on this campus and in the community has been truly fantastic. We focus on a number of things. We have projects on human trafficking. We have projects on, that I, like I described, on how flood hazards will affect poor people versus rich people. We have a number of interesting, we have a project on compassion. So we have a number of interesting things going on. And we also have a great educational program. So students take, we have a course on poverty and inequality, and we have another on the science and practice of compassion. We have a program that takes students into different parts of the world, in the U.S. and abroad, to live in poor communities, working with service organizations and getting a sense of poverty in different contexts. We have a program called Small Change, Better World that allows students to apply for a grant if they have any project they would like to implement to make the U.S. or some other part of the world better in a way, at least to try to do that. Then we will give them some funding to allow them to design and implement a project and see if it works. Students have done amazing things. They've put solar panels on hospitals in Africa, and they've outfitted traveling health clinics in Mexico, and they've worked with homeless populations in Orange County. They've done truly amazing things over the years with this relatively small amount of funding. In fact, the program has been so successful that there's a college in Pennsylvania, Dickinson College, which is going to do the same program there, and Emory University in Atlanta wants to do the same project. So I think what we're doing here is going to be replicated at other universities, because it just it's a wonderful opportunity for students to just say, I think I can do something, and mm-hmm. say, design a manageable project, something you can do while you're mm-hmm. a student. And installing a solar panel on a hospital may not seem like a lot, but somebody has to figure out how to get it there, they have to figure out how to get what the laws are, they have to figure out how to get it on, they have to figure out how to train people. It's a year-long process to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm really gra- gratified by what students at this university are capable of doing. Fantastic, Professor Matthew. The time has just flown by. Thank you so much for these insights, and thank you for the work that you do. It's important, and I think it was aptly titled as social ecology because... If we don't have a healthy social environment, what's it all about anyway? Thank you for your work. My pleasure.